We're going to read from God's Word now. Um, and if I was more organized, I'd pick one of you, maybe one of you. Um, now, well, if you are interested in reading, um, uh, please feel free to talk to Jen and we'll get you on the roster. Um, so, Mark chapter 1, we're going to read from verse 9 to 15. So, if you have your Bible or a device, never thought I'd ever say that, but please uh, get that ready. Right. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Thanks be to God for his word. Amen. Jared. Good morning. Uh, I'm Jared. I'm, I'm Owen's son. Uh, <laughs> I'm also the pastor here, which means I have the privilege of opening God's Word with you uh, each week and uh, studying it and, and getting to uh, work alongside the elders to care for the people here. If I haven't met you yet, please do come say hi to me after the service. I'd love to chat to you, get to know you more, um, and do stick around for morning tea. Uh, we've been working our way through Mark's Gospel, uh, Mark's account about Jesus' life. And uh, we're going to be continuing that today with that passage um, that my dad just read. And uh, the, the big focus of, of this section of Mark is that Jesus is the King. So please join me as we pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your love shown to us in the Lord Jesus. We ask that you give us understanding by your Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, conform us to the image of Jesus and prepare each and every one of us to hear what you are saying to us this morning in your word. Grant that we would go away from here changed by your word, and with eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Uh, when, when I said good morning uh, to you earlier, if you, if you started to think, what, what does that mean? What does he mean? Does he wish me a good morning? Or mean that it is a good morning, whether I want it or not? Or that he feels good this morning? Or that it is a morning to be good on? Then I think either, coincidentally, you think a lot like J.R.R. Tolkien. Or perhaps you've read Tolkien. Or at least the first five pages of The Hobbit. Like me. <laughs> the other title uh, for The Hobbit is There and Back Again. And that happens to be the title of our sermon this morning. Our text today starts in verse 9 saying, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And towards the end, it says in verse 14, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. So there and back again seems a very appropriate title to me. Jesus starts in Galilee in verse 9, and he's back there finishing up there in verse 14. A whole lot happens uh, in, in this time from Jesus coming from Galilee and going back into Galilee. 
but it all contributes to Mark's overall emphasis that Jesus is the king. Uh, Jesus begins by traveling from Galilee to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. Then he is immediately driven by the spirit into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. And then he goes back into Galilee to proclaim the massive news. He is anointed king in his baptism. He prevails in the wilderness over the temptation and Jesus preaches the massive news. And our three points this morning follow that pattern. Jesus is the baptized king, number one, the conquering king, number two, and the proclaiming king, number three. Baptized king. Uh, We begin with our first point. Jesus is the baptized king in verses 9 to 11. Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, Jesus' journey from Nazareth to the Jordan River was a fair trip. Uh, While we aren't certain of its exact whereabouts, uh, the traditionally held location would make that journey from Nazareth to his baptismal site about 130 kilometers. Um, uh, That's the distance it would take to walk from here at High Wycombe Church to our sister church in the little country town of Brookton, um, which is pretty far, um, or from here down to Harvey. Um, Has anyone done that? Has anyone walked from here to Harvey? (laughs) Maybe we could do that one time. Uh, <laughs> but anyone driven that? Who's driven that? Yeah, most of us. Um, imagine walking that. It's pretty far. Um, yeah. In this section, Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan. John baptizes Jesus. The Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. And the Father speaks to Jesus and about Jesus. And we see two key things in this section about Jesus at his baptism. One shows us how Jesus is different from us, and the other shows us how he is like us. Firstly, Jesus is anointed king, showing him to be unique. And secondly, Jesus is washed in identification with humanity. So anointed king. Does the word anointed ring any bells for you? Hopefully it does. A few weeks ago, Mark told us in verse 1 that Jesus is the Christ, uh, the Messiah, which means anointed one. Well, now Mark records Jesus being baptized, and that is Jesus being anointed. Uh, What Mark told us in his heading uh, is now playing out in his account of Jesus' life. But what is anointing? It's not a word that's used all that much. Um, I don't use it that often. I imagine you don't either. It means rubbing, smearing, or pouring with oil Uh, on a person to set them aside for a specific position. Uh, Similar to anointing, baptism is sprinkling, pouring, splashing, dunking. You get it, there's liquid, but in baptism, it's water, not oil. This text closely parallels the Old Testament accounts where the king is anointed by the prophet. A great example of this is the prophet Samuel anointing King David in 1 Samuel 16. There's oil, as in the case with David, or water, as in the case with Jesus. There's anointing, and the Holy Spirit descends on the king. Mark is showing us once again that Jesus is the king. Like David, anointed by the prophet Samuel, Jesus was anointed by the prophet John the Baptist. Like David, whom the Holy Spirit came upon, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. Jesus is anointed not only by John the Baptist, but by the Holy Spirit, marked out by him, 
but marked out for what? Well, there's another link to King David. God made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 that a son of David's would be the son of God who would rule as king forever. The kings in the Old Testament, they ruled for a time um, and then they died and none of them ruled forever. Uh, But God promised that a son of David's would be the son of God who would rule as king forever. And Will Murphy who's a student at Trinity Theological College. He's not the king who rules forever. (laughs) But he's going to come and tell us more about that king next week. So um, he's going to come and preach to us from that passage in 2 Samuel 7, which Mark is, is referring us back to about that promised son of God. But for now, uh, we just need to keep in mind that God said to David that one of his descendants would be not only David's son, but God's son. And that that promised son of God would rule forever. In this passage, we see God the Father declare that Jesus is his son, which identifies him as this king who rules forever. God the Father says these words about Jesus. Have a look with me in verse 11. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Mark shows us through his baptism that Jesus is the promised son of God who rules as king forever. This baptized King Jesus has been given the specific task of bringing God's kingdom, his rule to earth. We see here the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit interact. And we see the beauty of our three in one God. And so that sums up the Jesus, the anointed king. Now we come to how Jesus identifies with humanity. It's clear that Jesus' baptism corresponds with his anointing as king, but it also shows us Jesus' identification with us, that is, his humanity. Do you remember John proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins back in verse 4? Then doesn't that make you strike you to think, why does Jesus get baptized then? God is well pleased with him. He's perfect, as we just read in verse 11. While Jesus has no need of repentance or forgiveness, he, in the waters of baptism, identifies with people. People like you and me. People who desperately need forgiveness of sins. Jesus is a human like you and me. Except he never rebelled against God. He doesn't need forgiveness. So what does Jesus' baptism have to do with the forgiveness of sins? Well, Jesus' baptism powerfully points towards his death and resurrection, which is how he brings the forgiveness of sins. It's by becoming one of us, and only by becoming one of us, and dying and rising for us, that he can rescue us. So Jesus, the baptized king, is both different from us as the anointed son of God who rules forever, and like us as a human washed in identification with us people, pointing towards his death and resurrection. So that was our first point, the baptized king. And we now come to our second point. Jesus is the conquering king in verses 11 to 13. In this section, the spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness and he is tempted by Satan. But Jesus prevails in the wilderness. And not only does he prevail in the wilderness, he prevails beyond that as well. So we've seen Jesus go... From Galilee to the Jordan, now he goes to the wilderness. Straight after Jesus' baptism, 
The spirit who anointed Jesus sends Jesus to the wilderness or the desert, if you want to use another word for it. No time for a rest, no breaks, no, Mark says immediately in verse 12. And doesn't that also strike you as a little odd? Especially since Jesus faces temptation from Satan in the wilderness. What's the spirit sending Jesus into the wilderness for? Why not send him somewhere safe? Somewhere more like a king would hang out. Somewhere, somewhere that you could imagine a king being. You know, maybe a, a, in the temple or on a throne or something like that. Well, the significance of Jesus going straight to the wilderness is found in the promises we saw last week. Uh, those promises um, that are quoted by Mark in verses 2 and 3 um, from Isaiah and Malachi declared that the messenger would make a straight path in the wilderness for God himself to arrive. I remember how we saw John the Baptist shown to be that messenger. He fit the prophecies exactly. He was wearing his Elijah uniform. You might remember me wearing my high-vis. <laughs> um, and and he, he, was, he had the right outfit. He ate the right things. He lived in the right place. He went about doing the right things. Uh, he preached the word of God. And so John the Baptist is that promised messenger who prepared the way for God in the wilderness. The question then is, who follows after John? Because the one who follows after John in the wilderness is, according to the promise, God himself. Jesus comes after John in verse 9, and Jesus goes into the wilderness in verses 12 to 13. John prepared the way for Jesus in the wilderness. So in line with the prophecy, Jesus is God himself. And if we're familiar with the Old Testament, uh, then we'll recognize that the number 40 and the wilderness are no strangers. Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan in our passage today. But thousands of years before that, God's Old Testament people also found themselves in the wilderness. Not for 40 days though, but for 40 years. And despite God providing for all of their needs, their attitude was, uh, to put it mildly, absolutely woeful. God had freed them from slavery, rescued them, and they found themselves wandering in the desert, in the wilderness, and what did they do? They thanked God, you know, praise him. They grumbled, 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 grumbled. <laughs> they spoke in angry opposition to their leaders, Moses and Aaron, but they were ultimately speaking in angry opposition to God. Uh, one of the most iconic lines goes a little like this. Hey, uh, Moses, just wondering, um, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you decided to take us out here to die in this wretched place and, and our children and our, and our livestock? Um, was there, did you, did, you, did you run out of graveyard real estate? Is that, is that why you took us out to the desert where there's a nice big open space where you can bury the lot of us? Is that why we're here? It seems, it seems almost comical, doesn't it? They are so blind. But then we realize that we are rebels just like them. And then it hits closer to home. We can see how ridiculous they are. God's rescued them from slavery and all they do is grumble and complain. But if we stop to think that that's what we're like, grumblers and complainers against the good and loving God. Like Israel, Jesus was in the wilderness for a period of time with the number 40. But it's impossible to imagine more different responses to being in the wilderness than Israel and Jesus. 
Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and he was tempted by Satan. But unlike the people of Israel, Jesus never gave in to temptation. Jesus never spoke out against God. Jesus never put God to the test. And Jesus always remains true to his father. Jesus is truly the one with whom the father is well pleased. And like Jesus' baptism, Jesus in the wilderness is shown to be the divine king. And at, that, and at the same time, he identifies himself with the people. As the one who is fully God and fully human, Jesus is uniquely placed to save. He alone can reconcile humans to God. He's been through what each of us have been through, trials and temptations. But unlike Israel and unlike us, he's persevered without ever going against God. This makes his sacrifice in our place acceptable to God. And as God himself, he is powerful to enact his plan to save. As we sang earlier, he is mighty to save. Kings of the Old Testament fought battles with the surrounding nations and had various successes and losses with things like territory and so on. Jesus didn't come to fight the surrounding nations, but to defeat our ultimate enemies, sin, death, and the devil. Jesus defeated sin. Jesus defeated our rebellion. He died the death we deserved for our rebellion against God. He bore the consequences of our rebellion in our place on the cross. Jesus defeated death. Jesus powerfully rose from the dead, rendering death powerless. Like the other kings, he died, but Jesus came out the other side, alive, truly alive, having dealt death itself, the death blow. Jesus defeated the devil. Jesus broke the accuser's power. Uh, whenever Satan levels an accusation against one of Christ's people, it falls flat. Why? Jesus died. The debt has already been paid. And that brings us to our final point. Jesus, the proclaiming king, in verses 14 to 15. We've seen Jesus go from Nazareth of Galilee to be anointed the forever king in his baptism by John in the Jordan. We've seen his divinity and humanity and perfection as he prevails in the wilderness and beyond. And now he returns to Galilee and he comes with a message. If there's anyone in the history of the world who's worth listening to, it's the Lord Jesus, the king over everything. And what does he say? Verse 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Verse 14 tells us that he's proclaiming the gospel. Uh, if you think back to a few weeks ago, we, we noted that gospel means massive news. Uh, we, we have someone like a herald going, Hear ye, hear ye, victory is ours. Jesus is telling massive news. And what is the massive news? I'm glad someone asked. <laughs> the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is telling us it's go time. The whole of the Old Testament 
has been pointing towards the arrival of God's promised king. And Jesus says, I'm here and I'm bringing my kingdom. The time is now. The king you've been waiting for. I'm him and I'm here, says Jesus. That is massive news. The Old Testament is full of promises and prophets speaking of God coming to establish his kingdom on earth and save his people. Jesus, as the ultimate and final prophet, declares that what has been promised is now fulfilled. That's an enormous claim. But as we look at the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, we see him substantiate that claim. As we'll see in Mark, Jesus heals the sick, raises the dead, gives sight to the blind, teaches with authority, walks on water, performs many miracles, promises to raise himself from the dead, and then does it. So yes, saying he is the king of the whole world is an enormous claim. But backing that claim up proves that he is indeed that king of the whole world. And his arrival truly is massive news. The king of kings has really arrived. The God-man has come, and he's come to bring his kingdom. Along with Jesus' proclamation of his arrival as king comes a command. Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. In this simple yet extremely powerful command, Jesus tells us what we need to do in response to the massive news of his arrival as king. Firstly, Jesus tells us to repent. Repent means to turn away from our rebellion against God. By telling all people everywhere to repent, Jesus makes plain that there is a breakdown of relationship between us and God because of our rebellion. If that were not so, repentance would be unnecessary. But as it is, humanity, each and every one of us, is a rebel against God. By nature, we aren't right with God. We don't like the idea of submitting to God as king. We'd rather be king. We like to think we know best. We want to call the shots. And our world likes to tell us that we're all perfect, that there's nothing wrong with us. But the truth is that we are all, by nature, out of right relationship with God. Rebels who need rescuing. And for our rebellion against the perfect God, for rejecting the giver of life, we justly deserve condemnation and death in hell. We are rebels who need rescuing. Jesus tells us to turn away from our rebellion. He doesn't leave it there, though. Jesus tells us not only what we are to turn away from, but who we are to turn towards. Turn away from rebellion against God and turn towards Jesus, the King and Saviour. Believe in this massive news that the King has arrived and has come to establish his kingdom and bring salvation. Jesus is the King who is crowned on the cross. Jesus is the only one who can reconcile us to God. And that's because he's fully God and fully man. Only he can represent us as one of us, and only he can make us right with God as God. 
Jesus makes us rebels right with God because he died the death we deserved in our place. He took God's anger at our rebellion upon himself on the cross and offers us forgiveness and eternal life. Um, I think sometimes we can, we can think of something like repent and believe as a statement or suggestion, but it, here it is a command. Um, I read that in, in a Spurgeon sermon, so I can't take credit for that. But, <laughs> but he drew my attention to it, and then I checked it out, and it, it checks out. It's, a, it's an imperative. It's a command. Repent and believe. I think sometimes we think of, of commands like do not steal or do not murder, and we, we get, okay, that's telling us a command. Um, and if we disobey that, then there will be consequences. Well, repent and believe is a command from God. And if we don't obey him, we will be held accountable for our rejection of Jesus. So Jesus is telling us to turn away from our rebellion against God, to trust him alone as saviour and king. Jesus tells us to count the cost of this decision because following Jesus brings challenges in this life. He tells us that the world hated him and so they will hate us too. Following Jesus doesn't make this life easier, uh, but it's the difference between forever under God's judgment and forever enjoying God's presence in Jesus. I'll lead us in a prayer in a moment where we will turn from our rebellion and we will turn towards Jesus. You can pray this with me, whether you're doing this for the first time or however many times. We will turn from our sin and trust in the Saviour Jesus. Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, I am a rebel against you. I confess that so often I want to go my own way and do my own thing and live life on my own terms. I turn away from my rebellion against you and I turn towards you, Jesus, my Saviour and King. I believe in you, Jesus. I believe in the massive news that you are the King come to save. You are my only hope. Forgive me for my rebellion. Save me, I pray. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen.